0: You are listening to the podcast, When Life Gives You Lemons, presented by me, Emma Levy. Having worked with elite athletes for most of my career, it's always intrigued me that a significant number of high-performing individuals have encountered some form of adversity earlier in their lifetime. My fascination into this grew when I had my own brush with adversity, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer in May 2020, in the midst of the global pandemic at the age of only 36. During this period, I questioned whether it was my positive mindset or maybe something deeper, which enabled me to bounce back and to train and compete for a triathlon just one month following completion of all active cancer treatment. The goal of this podcast is to explore this concept further by meeting a variety of high performing individuals who have experienced adversity but who have come back stronger. So today, I'm welcoming Dr. Stacey Sims to the podcast. Stacy is a world-renowned physiologist, nutrition scientist and applied researcher, specialising specifically in sex differences in training and nutrition. She is an author of the popular books Raw and Next Level, researcher and all-round women's health expert. In 2019, Stacy delivered a TED Talk entitled Women Are Not Small Men. This now has nearly half a million views and is still growing. Stacey, thank you for chatting today. (laughs) Um, I am feeling a little bit intimidated to be sat in the presence of such women's health greatness. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Goes um, both ways.
1: Goes both ways. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, this, you know, this isn't an academic podcast, and I'm really interested in great people and their stories and what drove them to get them to where they are today, despite any challenges that you might have faced along the way. So I'm going to start with asking you, how and why um, did you get into nutrition science and physiology?
1: Oh, I've always been a curious kid, and uh, when I was in high school. Um, I wanted to be a professional chef and my parents were like, yeah, no, 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 you are not going to be a professional chef. I don't want that for my, my kid. So you have to find another path. And I was also a high school athlete. And so I was very interested in both, but when I got to university, I really, um, dug in like. Got out of my original poli-sci major and got into exercise physiology. So I was a competitive rower, wanted to know more about the body, how to train, why were you doing these things. And the one stumbling block I kept coming up against is the representation. The representation was always him or they. There was never she. So when you start thinking about things as an athlete and wondering why – our training as women wasn't quite putting us on par where we should be with the men and then there was always the quote tabooness about talking who was on the rag at what point of time during the training you know so that was always that quiet taboo it was never expressed in things like anatomy and physiology i was like why are we not talking about this it happens all the time so then when in you're doing um metabolism labs and other things in ex-phys space i was the only female that was fit enough to do a lot of them and i would standardize the way we're supposed to follow the rules to a t but many times my results were thrown out as an anomaly or mine would be just slightly different from the men's and they would say oh it must be something wrong with them with the operator, meaning like the treadmill or the Douglas bags or something like that. So they just roll all the results in together. And I was like, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. It really doesn't make sense. So being the person asks why, I would question and say, well, why are we doing this? Like, why are you throwing my results out? Like, why are you just saying it's operator error and not something that's real? Granted, it's only one person, but still, when you're new to research, you don't understand what the big data sets mean. And it was always, oh, we don't know enough about men, so we don't study women. It's too difficult. Women are just smaller versions of men, so we just generalize. There's no real difference. And it didn't seem right. So that's was kind of like the seed that was planted way back when. And throughout mm-hmm. my academic and sporting life. I've had questions from coaches, from teammates, from myself, and had the ability to go into the lab to answer them or collaborate with people who are doing the research to get the answers. And that's been the path.
0: Yeah. And in my podcast, we sometimes talk about what is someone's lemon. So your lemon was kind of that you were a woman and you yeah. felt that as a sex, we were being ignored. So, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, well, what did you do about it? Well, you became a badass researcher and scientist. <laughs> but not this, without the difficulties, right? The pushback. Ex- exactly. Right? So I was going to ask you about that because, you know, I've listened to your TED talk and I, I direct anyone listening to this to listen to that entitled Women Are Not Small Men. And so, like you said in this, you mentioned how your results were being disregarded, like you just said. Um And I have been told by a colleague at work, and I don't know if this is true, that in scientific research, females used to make up just 4% of the population. And she said, but it's okay; it's improved now to 6%. Mm -hmm. Yep, (laughs) exactly. Is this true? And so are you still getting pushback about studying women separately?
1: Yes, absolutely. And my PhD students are as well. So I have PhD students that are in more of the medical scope, looking at concussion, concussion recovery, ACL. And the orthopedic physicians are like, why are you trying to make your PhD that much more difficult by studying women? And I was like, excuse me? They're saying, what? And they're getting pushback about wanting to study women. And it's like, well, there's a higher incidence of ACL tears in women. So why are we not studying that? Why would you say we need to study in men when it's not a real injury in men? And then for concussion, we know the outcome for concussion recovery is completely different. And there are known sex differences, but we don't exactly know why. So this is, you know, in the current time. And then just giving lectures and talking to coaches, there's always pushback. And so, you know, I have, I tell my students to have a a File of stupid people emails or you know They can write something to themselves when they get very frustrated and to go back at the end of their PhD and look and see What kinds of things have shaken out and it's been really interesting when people have gone back to say yeah This person's views have changed by working with me or this person is still the same and no one wants to work with them So it's just something to kind of have a check because there is still so much sex bias out there and it's really incredible when you really start getting into it going, this is 2024 and people are still thinking in this old cis white male mentality, and that's how we should be conducting research.
0: Yeah, and I, I do wonder if it kind of starts way back and if we need to just start education much earlier. So I was just saying to you off camera, I've got I've got an 11 year old boy. I've actually got three boys, but <laughs> he's my eldest boy. And you know he gets awkward talking about periods. Yeah. And I know at school, they've started, um, I don't think they call it sex education these days, but they've started something like that. But they split the girls and the boys and the mm-hmm. girls learn about periods and the boys don't. Yep. But actually, I think sometimes our problem is that the men don't understand our sex differences enough. So when you're getting to the science labs, you know, when they're, they're older, they haven't got that kind of knowledge from back when they were kids. So what's your thoughts on that? Do you think we should start teaching them earlier?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm laughing because I had that exact conversation this morning with my daughter and her best friend because they had health class today. And I was like, oh, what are you guys learning in health? And then they started giggling. I'm like, are they talking about periods and sex? And they're like, yeah, but they don't even call it that. I was like, are the boys in the room? No. Should the boys be in the room? Yes. They need to know what we go through because, you know, it's really important they understand us. I was like, of course it is. But it's still the segregation, right? And there's there's probably a case study you've seen floating around from um, – it was a, a private high school in London that was really trying to get after this about the um, social stigma periods. And so they brought um, the research study to the actual – students and said hey we are looking for girls and boys who are best friends they're not dating they're just really good friends and we want to bring you all together and we want to talk about shared experiences of being a high school student but under the guise of what they really wanted was for the girls to talk about their periods and have the guys understand what it felt so over the course of six weeks they had this you know socio socio-cultural kind of conversation to understand what it was to be a boy and then what the Um, barriers were for the girls, especially wearing school uniforms and all that kind of stuff. And the girls really dug into how difficult it was to be themselves when they were on their period about being worried about if they're gonna leak through, if they had to leave class suddenly, excuses for phys ed or sport, all the things that we hear about from like the myths and things. And at the end of the, you know, the trial period, their best friends who were boys really understood it and went to bat for them and was like, we have got to teach everybody about this because it's not fair that you are one of my really good friends and you experience this and have this social stigma and feel bad about yourself every month. And so they were able to implement that and understand that. And I was like, why are we not doing
0: this earlier? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, hormones is what kind of plays um, a big factor in our sex differences, and I do want to go there a little bit. And obviously, it's difficult because we've got premenopausal, perimenopausal, postmenopausal, and that's what I like so much about your book Raw, which I've read. How you do take each section um, separately, and obviously, you can't um, you can't make advice because one size doesn't fit all. But what I've heard you talk about, I've, I've heard you talk about a few things that I thought would be, could be really interesting to go into a little bit. Okay. So the first one is I've heard you say that women should lift heavy shit. Yes. Second one is women should eat more. Yes. Third one is that carbs aren't bad for women. Correct. And fourth one is that women should not do intermittent fasting. Exactly. Exactly. And anyone who knows me now knows why I'm such a big fan of yours. <laughs> because if anyone tells me to eat more and eat more carbs, well, they're my new best friend. Awesome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyone listening might be thinking, well, hold on, I heard on the Diary of CEO recently, on the Diary of the CEO podcast, you know, I heard Dr. Mindy Peltz say that all women should be fasting. And then I've just also listened to, um, is it Dr. Chris Palmer on the Jordan Peterson podcast saying how everyone should be fasting for, you know, all these metabolic reasons, etc. And so then when I come across your work, I'm like, okay. This is interesting. So I don't know where you want to start. I don't know if you want to start with the lifting heavy shit or the nutrition side. What makes Uh, more sense? um, Let's go nutrition into lifting heavy, shall we? Cool, all right, go.
1: So um, (laughs) when we talk about intermittent fasting, versus time-restricted eating. We have to put some terminology into play. So time-restricted eating, to me, is just normal eating, where you don't eat after dinner, and then you have breakfast. It works with our chronobiology. We see that we have better sleep metrics. It works for both men and women. We also see that when men and women follow that kind of pattern of I guess if you want to be trendy, say it's a 12-hour fast, but really it's just normal eating. They end up with better gut microbiome diversity. They have better metabolic control, less cardiovascular risk factors, easier to lose body fat, don't have as much of a cereal fat. So a reduction in all the obesogenic outcomes. When we look at intermin- intermittent fasting,
0: this is a different story. So when we talk about, so can I just can I just take you back one second? So time restricted eating, you're basically saying twelve hour window. You wake up at seven o'clock. You have breakfast at seven thirty. You have dinner at seven thirty. That's your twelve yeah. hours, and then yep. you don't eat after. So like you said, that is basically normal eating. Yep, and it works with our okay.
1: circadian rhythms. Yeah. When we look at intermittent fasting, this is where it gets a little bit crazy because you have di- people that are you know doing the Fasting mimicking type diet, where they have days of really low calorie intake, and then we have days of normal eating, or we have the twenty-four or the sixteen-eight. There's all sorts of different ways of people not eating with the with the idea of increasing metabolic flexibility, increasing our mitochondrial um, respiration and mitochondrial density, telomere length, all this kind of stuff. When we look at all the positive outcomes, it's based on male data. When we look at what happens for women, completely different story. We don't have an increase in parasympathetic drive. We have an increase in sympathetic drive. We have more um, glucose dysregulation, so a little bit more insulin resistance. We don't have a change in autophagy. We don't have a change in telomere length. And it has really to do with the hypothalamus. So, when we look at the hypothalamus, there are two areas in the hypothalamus that register nutrient density for women. And there are two areas specifically because we have a more robust endocrine system. So, that means that we have a menstrual cycle. We have, um, you know, daily perturbations of estrogen and progesterone that change cyclically. And then we have an area that's um, really regulated by estrogen that's appetite control and circadian rhythm. But for men, there's only one area. And so, endocrine and metabolic control and everything is in that one area. We also look at sex differences in muscle morphology. So men, by the nature of being born XY, have more glycolytic fibers. So that means they can burn sugar pretty quickly. They have more fast twitch. They're able to do that high intensity work. But they don't have as much of the mitochondrial type fibers, but women do. So women are born with more of the aerobic type fibers. So we already have that maximum fatty acid oxidation capacity, better mitochondrial health, all of those things that, you know, people are saying I'm doing fast and I'm doing fasted training to improve. As women, we don't need to do that. So then when we start looking specifically at what does fasted mean, we see in the research when women are doing fasted training, It exacerbates this misstep in the hypothalamus. So the hypothalamus is like, hey, wait a second, there's not enough nutrition coming in. So I'm going to stay in this breakdown state, this catabolic state. So I'm gonna just really start stripping down lean mass. So people are trying to do um, fasted training to improve metabolic health and build lean mass and burn body fat, it does the opposite in women. But for men, completely different story because their threshold for um, that nutrient sensitivity is completely different. So for example, we say that women start to experience endocrine dysfunction around 30 calories uh, per kilogram of fat-free mass, but for men, it's 15. So we see why, like right, from those numbers, and this is in sedentary populations that these have been equated to, that there's this distinct sex difference in that threshold, So then when we're looking at the general population of fasted and fasted training, we also see that there's a circadian rhythm in there as well. When we see women who delay their food intake till about noon, and they eat from noon to 6 or 7 p.m., they have more obesogenic outcomes. When we see it in men, that's not quite as apparent. But what we are attributing it to is this decrease in gut microbiome and decrease in the diversity. So if you're not eating in, you know, at regular basis and you're incredibly stressing the body and putting it into the sympathetic drive, you get a decrease in the gut microbiome diversity. So then we see there is a lack of BDNF production. There's a lack of serotonin production. There is a misstep in vitamin production and, and the way that the body is responding to metabolites. And so when we put the whole picture together, from all the research around, it does not make inherent sense for women to be doing intermittent fasting. Yeah. For men, sure. But for women, it's just not there to say that is great for longevity and health.
0: Yeah. So can I just pick up on a few things? Yeah. Um, for anyone listening that might say, oh, well, hang on, that's not what I thought. Um, so the first thing I find really interesting is that, so you're saying the research into intermittent fasting is mostly done on Am I right in saying it's obese males? Yes. So nothing to do with females? No. So, so we actually have no research supporting intermittent fasting for females? Or is that starting to come out?
1: What we're seeing is what's coming out is detrimental to women. So we have some yeah. that are done in like CrossFit, uh, CrossFit athletes. We have some that are done in resistance-trained athletes. So you have the um, high-intensity intermittent exercise. We have some in endurance athletes. And it's all saying the same thing. When you're doing intermittent fasting and your training window falls into that fasted state, you're burning lean mass and you're increasing sympathetic drive. So when you're looking at from a health standpoint, it's absolutely the wrong thing to be doing. Yeah. If we're looking at time restricted eating, so again, you know, you have that 12 hour overnight fast that has some health benefits. But when we start layering exercise onto that, exercise is a stronger stress. So we get better autophagy, we have better longevity, better neural um, growth pathways in the brain, depending on what kind of exercise we're doing. So if you're layering that intermittent fasting, and exercise as a woman I look at someone and I go you're basing all of your health metrics on something like Peter Atia is telling you to do that's based on male data and an N of one and it's just not appropriate for you when
0: you look at the research. So what about like this this Dr. Mindy Peltz who's a female who's written a book called is it the female fast? Uh, fast like a girl. Yes which yeah. I haven't read what did she say in argument? <laughs> yeah so
1: I have read it and I cringed and I know this is a podcast, and it's going to go out, and I don't like to necessarily be so negative, but when we're looking at the data that she's pulling out, she's a chiropractor who is looking at the high touch of the, the research, and hers is you want to fast according to menstrual cycle phase, and she's saying you need to fast in the luteal phase, and when you look from a physiological standpoint, that's the worst possible time to be fasting, because your metabolism is elevated, you're in more of a catabolic state, you have a greater protein need, and you need more carbohydrate just to exist for functionality. So we're looking at this stuff, I'm like, wait a second, there's no data to support this. And then when you're talking about fasting and all the health outcomes, it's based on male data. So when we're looking at at that. And people are like, well, you guys need to be on a podcast together. I'm like, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to discuss the research that's out there, but it just hasn't happened. So I'm someone that I want to get down to the bottom of the rabbit hole. And I wanna see what's going on across the board, not just in sports science research, not just in endocrine research, but I wanna see all the rabbit tunnels at the bottom of the hole. But so many other people are just at the very top, at the entrance, and they're like, oh, all of these little research studies and abstracts, they kind of make sense, so I'm gonna go with that. And I think that's where we have this discrepancy. That would be a great podcast
0: with the two of you. (laughs) You can be the (laughs) intermediary. Exactly, oh. That's already here being manifested. Okay. Um, and do you know what's really funny as well? And and I feel a little bit embarrassed about this, is I have been intermittent fasting for about a year now. Oh, no. Yeah, because, you know, I listen to all these podcasts. I'm not a physiologist, a nutritionist. I'm a physiotherapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I listen to them. I think, oh, that sounds really interesting. And what I was thinking in my kind of simple mind was – um. If I avoid bre- I was just avoiding breakfast and starting at kind of midday, one o'clock. And, you know, my body got used to it, so I wasn't hungry any longer and it, it kind of worked. And then I was even working out in the morning, intent, yeah, like doing a fasting workout. Um, and I was thinking that what that was happening is because I didn't necessarily have it. This is, again, really simple. OK, mm-hmm. I was thinking because I didn't have necessarily any glucose or calories to burn, that my body would turn to burning fat. But what you're saying is actually I was uh, burning muscle. Yep, you were. And my body was holding on to fat to protect itself. Exactly. And when we see that
1: it's, quote, fat burning when we're doing fasted workouts, it's because men and women fuel differently. So men will go through all their stored glucose and get into fatty acid burning. But women Nope. We don't go through all of our stored glucose. We use blood sugar and free fatty acid and amino acids. And the body's like, wait a second. This is a huge stress. So I'm going to burn the most metabolically active tissue, get the
0: biggest bang for my buck, which is your muscle. Great. Yeah. So you'll be pleased to know, since I've started listening to you and researching you for today, I've now stopped doing that. Yay! So I have, <laughs> And guess what? I feel so much better.
1: Fantastic. Fantastic.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I'm and- now training. I'm training for the London Marathon. So actually, also, I realised that I couldn't quite do that in a fasted state. Um, so I, that's also why I started to eat more. But it, it, now I'm eating more. It makes so much more sense. Yeah. Everything you were saying... I just feel more energetic on my runs obviously. Yeah. Um so let's talk let's talk about carbs cuz yes. as well I was having zero carbs cuz I thought that was my best way to regulate weight because mm-hmm. basically since I had breast cancer I put on a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. And I put that down to tamoxifen. I don't know if you know much about tamoxifen, yep. but mm-hmm. tamoxifen it my understanding is it blocks um the estrogen receptors so -hmm. it doesn't reduce the amount of estrogen in your body but it stops your body absorbing Mm -hmm. the estrogen and i think that's had an effect on my um, weight maintenance which apparently there's no research into according to my oncologist so i'm not sure if you know anything about that um but it's definitely made it harder for me to kind of balance my weight which is why i went down this intermittent fasting and why i stopped carbs so talk to me about carbs
1: Okay, on a side note,
0: there's a a
1: breast oncologist who runs Boston Marathon out of Harvard, and her name is Amy Commander, and we had a conversation about the same thing, because she sees a lot of women who come in on tamoxifen and go, what's going on? So it's as Mm -hmm. if you've been thrown into menopause and all the changes that happen with it, but no one's educated you about it, but we'll get to that. So then when we talk about carbohydrates, carbs are great, because our Bodies, as I just described earlier, our thresholds are different. And women need carbs. And the reason why women need carbs for the most part is for fueling purposes. So when we're talking about exercise fueling, we go through our blood glucose a lot faster than men do because we don't tap into our liver and muscle glycogen as quickly or as efficiently as men because we are more metabolically flexible. So we have blood sugar that stimulates the body to get into fat burning a lot faster. If we don't have carbohydrate, it has to have a little bit of an extra, like sympathetic stress to get some of that glycogen out And to say, yep, we got to use that. And then we get into fat burning. But an intermediate there is the liver saying, hmm, wait a second, there's not quite enough here. So I'm actually going to slow the rate of fat burning, both during exercise and at rest, because I don't know if I'm going to get any carb to be able to refill my glycogen. So when we talk about carbohydrate, there's a threshold difference. Women need it. And because we have a more robust and demanding endocrine system, we need more carbohydrate. We need more carbohydrate availability. And we're seeing a lot in female athletes from recreational all the way up to elite that they might not be in low energy availability, but they're in low carbohydrate availability. So it's coming across as if they are in relative energy deficiency in sport. You increase their carbohydrate, And especially in and around training and the symptomology of Red S goes away. So that's why we know that they're in low carb availability, not total low energy availability. So carbs, super important. But as we get older and hit menopause, the timing and type of carbohydrate changes because we get more insulin resistant. So what we want to do is we want to look at bookending our exercise with some of the more simple carbs And then the rest of the time, we're looking at a wide variety of colorful fruit and veg and mixed grains, so more of the complex carbs, because that doesn't have as a great impact on our body with insulin resistance. And it also increases the deep gut bacteria diversity, which is something that we lose when we hit late perimenopause into postmenopause, which does contribute to some of the body fat gain. We see it's really apparent in like the two or three years before menopause and definitely in the two to three years after that menopause set. So if we keep the gut microbiome happy by lots of colorful fruit and veg and whole grains, which are carbs,
0: then we have a better
1: outcome in body composition as well.
0: So you're basically not telling people to go and eat loads of white bread and white pasta.
1: No, not at all. Colorful. Lots of colorful. The caveat is, though, on the when you're premenopausal, so you're in your reproductive years, you're in your late 20s, early 30s, and maybe you have an addiction to kids' sugar cereal. Not a very good thing, ultra-processed. But if you really love it, then you can have some of that with some Greek yogurt right after training, and it's one of the perfect recovery foods. You have a very fast, simple carbohydrate from the cereal and protein from the yogurt, good to go. That's the caveat.
0: So post-training is a good time to have carbs.
1: Yep, definitely, and before training, but if you want that really simple, like you're addicted to the ultra-processed foods, which is why you pushed them away, but you're like, ah, I kinda want some, after training, after training. What about like a a Cadbury's dairy milk after training? Sure, (laughs) as long as you have protein (laughs) with it.
0: All right, done, I'll just
1: dip it in some yogurt. Or cottage cheese. That was one of my friends. She's an ultra runner and she loves, she loves snicker bars, but she was afraid of the impact it had on her, especially getting to race weight. So she would have a snicker bar, half a snicker bar and half a thing of cottage cheese. She'd get a big whack of protein with her snicker bar. I'm like, okay, I can see that, but I don't know how tasty it is.
0: Sounds terrible. Yeah. Um, And so talk to me about protein then. Because yes. as well, we don't eat enough protein, do we? No, generally?
1: no. And there's a big worry about protein from the health scope and the sedentary population. Um, because there's a big, it's circulating around this week specifically about too much protein can increase mTOR, which can promote tumor growth and all sorts of stuff. But when we look at, at the real research in active women, not true. We are looking at the fact that everyone produces IGF-1 after exercise. It's just one of those things that happens to repair tissue, but it's not going to increase any kind of dangerous aspect. And I'm saying this because you are a breast cancer survivor and if you hear people saying, oh, you shouldn't have a lot of protein, that's where it's coming from. But when we look specifically at protein, as we're getting older, we become more anabolically resistant to both protein and exercise. So if we want to build lean mass, we need to really up our protein. When we're looking at the general recommendations of protein intake right now, and we're seeing the RDI or or RDA, wherever you are, of around that 0.6 to 0.8 grams per kilo, that's based on sedentary old men. Because then they're putting out the recommendations. They're like, hey, look at this. A 65-year-old sedentary guy has around the same body fat and composition as a 20-year-old woman. So, yeah, their protein needs are the same. And we know that that's not true because now we've seen some research that's come out specifically on women, especially active women, and it hits about the 1.6 to 1.8 grams per kilo needed daily. And as we get older, that comes up to between two and 2.3 grams per kilo per day. Wow! And so we're looking at a higher intake of protein. But for women, we've never had that conversation around protein needs because we've grown up in the whole carb fear world. We've grown up with the low fat, high carb, you know, so we've gone those gamuts. But we haven't had that protein conversation And now that it's starting to come out more, women are having a really difficult time understanding that protein does so many things for you besides just build muscle. It helps regulate appetite. It helps body recomposition without exercise. So when we're looking at total health and longevity, getting that protein need that you have per day is so important for now, but also as you get older to build and maintain lean mass, as well as brain health and bone health and other things that come down the line, especially as we get older.
0: And that's a lot of protein. And so if someone can't fit that in their diet, are you a fan? Is it okay to have protein powders?
1: Yeah, there's a supplement for a reason. It's when people start having nothing but
0: protein powders is when we start to get a bit worried. So that can supplement and that can kind of help top up our protein, but we shouldn't be fully reliant on that. Correct. Okay. Um, So you talked about protein and the importance of protein with muscles. So let's talk about the importance of lifting heavy shit. And I'm really interested in this because in the UK, I'm sure you know that the Department of Health recommendations are to do 180 minutes of moderate intensity exercise (laughs) every week for an adult. And I think they say that you should do resistance training twice twice a week. But their advice on resistance training is like one kilogram dumbbells. Mm -hmm. Um, And what your research is telling us is that that is incorrect. You
1: are correct when I say it's incorrect. Um, I was presenting at a female athlete health conference in Boston last June and was talking about how women, especially in their forties and beyond need to lift heavy and that 150 to 180 minutes of moderate intensity activity is not appropriate. The past president of the ACSM stands up and says, you wanna tell me that again? Because we have done a lot of research and this comes to be like what we need. And in my head, I automatically went male data. Because when we look at it, yes, we want people to move and we're looking at cardiovascular health and we're looking at lean mass and everything, then sure, modern intensity, walking, a little bit of resistance training, great. But if we're going to dial it down and disseminate it into how do we age gracefully as women, we need to lift heavy. Because when we have estrogen, we have a key hormone that is telling our body to build and maintain lean mass and have strong muscle contractions but as we start to have a misstep in our estrogen and estrogen production we have a change in the stimulus for building and maintaining lean mass because now we don't have estrogen stimulating that really basic satellite cell to say hey we need to reproduce so we can have more muscles we also don't have a stimulus for really strong muscle contraction Because one of the key proteins for muscle contraction, myosin, is really activated by estrogen to bind strongly to actin for that strong muscle contraction. And then for nerve impulse, so brain signals down, got to do a muscle contraction. How fast that nerve comes down and stimulates the muscles also reliant on a neurotransmitter that's controlled by estrogen. When we lose estrogen, have a misstep in our ratios of estrogen, progesterone, or flat out lose it completely, we need to look to our central nervous system to step up. So we need to do power-based training. We need to have a very heavy load to create a central nervous system response. So now the central nervous system is saying we need to put more acetylcholine there so that we can have a really fast nerve conduction. We need to make... Myosin really robust to grab onto actin and have a strong muscle contraction. And by the way, we actually need more muscle mass, so we need to stimulate the other feedback mechanisms, including protein and mTOR, to create more muscle. So when I talk about women lifting heavy shit, I mean that we need to look at the eye of power base that heavy where it's really difficult and you're not doing, um, no ab work between your sets and reps. We're not doing 10 to 12 reps. We are actually looking at that three, maybe twos on some blocks of training, 80 to 85% of one rep max. So you're, it's hard. It's really hard. And people are like, I don't want to lift heavy today. I'm dreading it, but it's really essential. It's a hard session, but it's not a long session. It's just a
0: hard session. And what do you say to those maybe postmenopausal women who are a little bit scared of hurting themselves? You know, yep. saying, oh, I can't lift. I'll do a heavy deadlift. I'm going to hurt my back. Yeah.
1: And so I tell them that it's not a six-week training block. We're not looking for that. We're looking for the rest of our lives. So anyone who's not used to barbells, not used to lifting heavy, is afraid of the gym, we want to first see how you move. So we want to put in some functional functional training. We want to see where your sticking points are. Do we have to work on range of motion within the joint? Um, are we going to be able to get you into good form? So there's kind of that pre-work that we need to do before we can add load. If you're someone who's never lifted and you only done body weight stuff, okay, that's fine. But first, let's see how you move. Let's really get into it. And maybe we add a backpack with some kettlebell weight in there to your air squats. So we're just slowly starting to add load with the eye to then building up to being able to go to the gym and start with really good technique and form doing some of the more compound lifts and then adding load as we get stronger and more confident because I don't ever want anyone to say, I've got to go to the gym tomorrow and lift heavy shit because I heard this podcast and it makes complete sense to me. I want people to understand injury prevention is paramount. Confidence is paramount. So first we build on building that confidence through how you move, range of motion, getting very considerate and specific in the movement and technique
0: before we add load. And what do you say to the women who you know, that kind of old-fashioned opinion of, well, I, I can't lift weight because I don't want to get bulky. I know. I
1: laugh. In my head, I laugh hysterically. Out Outwardly, I have my professional face and I'm like, well, it's really difficult for women to get bulky, especially as we age, because we've lost our key sex hormone that is the impetus for building muscle. And unless we take the eye to the bodybuilding world where we are eating things three to 4,000 calories a day in the gym, maybe twice a day and absolutely no cardiovascular work whatsoever will you become bulky because it is almost impossible for the general person to bulk up without purposely trying to bulk up. What you will find is you will be getting stronger and you might put on some more lean mass, but when we get be 40 and above, it's really, really difficult to put on lean mass, which is probably why I get so concerned when people talk about they're doing fasting or maybe they're doing a Zimpec or something like that, where the first thing that goes is lean mass because it's so mm. hard
0: to put it on. Yeah. And so what do you think women should be doing cardio at all?
1: Yeah. there's. I mean, I come from a long endurance background. I did ultra running. I did Ironman, I race road bikes professionally, I've done Xterra, all that kind of stuff. The whole mainstay throughout all of that, I was always lifting for injury prevention. And now when we're looking at the research for someone who's training for a marathon or for someone who's training for something specific that's endurance oriented, we play around with your training and your periodization to get you to the race in top condition. But we want to drop volume and put in more high intensity work. So we're looking at true high intensity interval training or true sprint interval training and resistance training. So when I'm talking about high intensity interval training, I'm not talking about a 45 minute boot camp class. I'm talking about being very specific with your intervals of one to four minutes, really good recovery between, and you're very specific in that workout. When we're talking about sprint interval training, the sprint part is just the intensity of the interval We're 30 seconds or less, top end. On a scale of one to 10, 10 being the most, you're going at nine or 10. So Mm -hmm. you're not doing very many of them, but it's that top, top end. And it comes back to the fact that women already are very capable of going long and slow because we all have a lot of those aerobic oxidative fibers. If we want to keep progressing in life and having really good longevity we need to boost up that intensity yeah even if you say that because i even if we're training for a marathon
0: exactly i I describe myself like an elephant i (laughs) i say i can just plod for hours you know what i mean every woman can this is why we see such a (laughs) increase
1: in um women participating in the ultra sports Mm -hmm. especially as we see like the masters athletes like 40 and above really gravitating to ultra running endurance cycling endurance open water swimming because women are really 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 good at going long and slow but if we want to be you know a little bit better in our sport we have to pepper that with some really good intensity and strength
0: Yeah, I'm going to the gym now. (laughs) Yay! Your body will thank you at the finish line. Exactly. Um, There's so much we could talk about here. Um, We haven't touched on um, tracking menstrual cycles. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you your opinion on if like a normal layperson should track their menstrual cycle and therefore should adapt their training plan around it. So when we're talking about
1: tracking our menstrual cycle, I think it's really important for every woman to understand their bodies and tracking the menstrual cycle gives you the opportunity to do that. So, you know, when you're going to start bleeding and around about, you know, some women get really bad ovulatory pain and no one talks about it, but if you're tracking it and you know it, then you can bring it up to your physician or you can moderate your training around it. When we talk about the generalizations of training that was circulating a few years ago, we have to take a step back from that. And the fact that we know that the body's really resilient in the follicular phase, and we can dictate what you do in the follicular phase. But ovulation is so arbitrary across the board because we see there are many anovulatory cycles in every woman. It's natural We see that the more stress you're under, the less that you're going to have an ovulatory cycle. So we can't really predict when and what the luteal phase looks like without specific parameters around it. But if we are really interested in dialing our training in and getting a better handle on how our hormones affect us, then we track our menstrual cycle and we start to see our own patterns. We might see that on day 28 of our 32-day cycle, we feel fantastic and bulletproof. Well, that's the day you want to go hard. You want to do a heavy track workout, or you want to lift heavy in the gym because your body has the capability of doing that. But say maybe day 11 on your cycle, you feel really flat because there's coming up to an estrogen surge. You might be around ovulation, maybe not, but you're like, hmm. Just don't feel it. And you start to see these regular patterns. You can dial your training into your own patterns. And that's where we talk about menstrual cycle and menstrual cycle training is with our own patterns and understanding there are times from an immune standpoint and a metabolic standpoint where we can acquire more stress, which is the low hormone phase and where we might want to look at protecting our immune system in the high hormone phase if we know that we have a tendency to get upper respiratory tract infections or tend to get soft tissue injury. It's just a a checks and balance to really moderate what we're doing to get the best out of our training working with our physiology.
0: Yeah. So it's working with our own physiology and you don't have to do that just as an athlete. Do you You can be no. just a normal layperson. Um, are there any specific apps you'd recommend for this purpose? Um, if we're looking for tracking our own patterns, but
1: not relying on the information that's coming out with regards to ovulation and the phases that we're in, any app will do. But if you're looking at you know really dialing in and understanding where your phases are, you have to do a little bit more homework. Where you want to use something like Wild AI, that is uh, female algorithms written for women by women. So they understand the change in your autonomic nervous system. They're tracking changes in heart rate variability. They're tracking changes in your sleep patterns. So the more data that you give it, it feeds back and say, you know, retrospectively, we're pretty sure that you ovulated and you're in the high hormone phase. Again, it's not a fertility app. None of these are fertility apps, but it does give you really good insight. You can use something like Fitter Woman that's a little bit more 2D, but gives you information as an active woman. Um, It's when we start to look at like the Oura Ring or we look at Garmin, and they're trying to use skin temperature to predict ovulation. All of that is not helpful, but confuses women. So find something that works for you. Even, you know, a little pen and paper.
0: I think I've also heard you say, and tell me if I'm right, that some of these wearables aren't actually using data based on females. Not at all.
1: Not at all. There is such a huge sex bias in AI and the algorithms um, because it's learning from the internet or it's learning from the male prompt engineers, right? And so there's already a sex bias in the data, and then it gets compounded by these algorithms. And when we're looking at the wearable algorithms, they are based on male data. And there are sex differences across the board from how long our QRS interval is in our heart rate, changes in our heart rate variability with progesterone coming up. We have a decrease in our heart rate variability, an increase in our resting heart rate. So these algorithms are reading women as being highly stressed and under-recovered, but it's because they haven't accounted for the extra noise that women's physiology gives to these algorithms.
0: Yeah. But you work with WHOOP, is that right? Mm -hmm. And are you trying to improve that and use female data? Yes. Yes. So there is hope for the future.
1: There is definitely hope (laughs) for the future.
0: So I think we've done some really good myth busting in the past 45 minutes. Is there any myths that we haven't covered that you would like to say what you're seeing on social media is nonsense?
1: Um, almost everything. <laughs>
0: social- no, just kidding.
1: I'm kidding. Um, zone two. Zone two is yeah. another one of those really big ones that's out there. And for women who are time pressed and really looking for longevity and all the health that's being pushed out there with zone two, don't spend the time on zone two because like I said earlier, women are already oxidatively capable and we already are metabolically flexible. So we don't have to spend all the time in zone two. We need to spend more time in that high intensity. It's not necessarily so that we can go fast and have power, but for brain health. Because we see a sex difference in early onset dementia and Alzheimer's and it's coming back to brain metabolism and the plaque buildup. So what we're seeing is there's a misstep in lactate metabolism. Because women haven't been pushed to go high intensity, we don't have the natural capacity because we don't have as much of those fast twitch fibers. So we don't necessarily produce lactate on a regular basis, but we need to because the brain prefers lactate, and you have neurons that use it to keep neural pathways going and to change the plasticity. So it's really improving brain health and brain function, prevents cognitive decline. So when we're talking about time-press stuff, we need to look at doing short, sharp, high-intensity work, not spending time doing zone two. Yeah. Super two, important. Just
0: to explain to the people that don't know, that's that really low intensity where you can still talk basically, and You're exercising, but you can still have a full conversation. So you're not at all out of breath.
1: Right. And they say uh, that you're supposed to do two to four sessions of 45 to 80 minutes a week. And I think about it, I'm like, oh my gosh, that is so much time.
0: And it is not
1: beneficial for women to be doing that kind of work
0: yeah so you can basically spend less time do something more high intensity that's going to benefit our brain health, yep as well as our our metaphysiology,
1: yep, yeah, because the other Amazing. thing that high intensity does is it creates a greater crosstalk between our skeletal muscle and the deep abdominal visceral fat, and those um, extra kinds are saying, hey, don't store fat we don't need you fat to go away but if we're doing long slow stuff we don't get that signaling we also see you know so many other things so high intensity coming from a long-term endurance athlete
0: yeah um i wanted to finish by talking about resilience and mindset because that's where our podcast normally goes Mm -hmm. and i'm going to read what i read on your youtube about section where it says, so you're you're writing this, my vision is a world of healthy women who understand their bodies, know how to work with their unique physiology, know their periods are ergogenic aids and create positivity around being a woman in sport. Together, we can shift the destructive narrative and elevate women in research, science, and sport. Yes. So I wanted to ask you, Stacy, do you feel that you are a resilient person and that you have used your resilience and your positive mindset to shift that destructive narrative and you believe you're helping to elevate women? I hope so. I live in a country that has tall poppy syndrome, but
1: um, when I see the impact that people come up and tell me, things that they have done and implemented. I see the conversations that my daughter has with her friends. I do truly believe that we are breaking down those barriers. Um, One of the things that's missing, and I really want people to bring into the conversation, though, are our lived experiences because we have so many different cultural and societal norms that are perpetuating the destructive narrative. So until we can start looking at how that is a risk factor for so many things, I don't think we're gonna quite make it yet, but really still trying to push and hoping that
0: we are actually creating change. Amazing. Thank you, Stacey. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I do really find your knowledge really, really inspiring. And there's so much you've said today, so much you've said that I'm going to take on board personally, and I hope everyone else listening will will do the same. I believe you are making positive changes um, to females out there. Um, I I just also want to say at this point, I don't believe this episode is just for women or academics. I really think, and I think I said at the beginning, I think that males around us need to understand the female physiology more. Um, And I hope that this episode of the podcast will motivate people to see the importance of understanding our own physiology, like you said, working with it and using it to our advantage to become stronger, healthier and more robust individuals. So thank you so much for joining me today, Stacey. I've really, really enjoyed this chat. I could have gone on honestly all morning.
1: Thanks for having me. And of course, I love to talk about this stuff. So we probably could have extended it, but that's okay. I'm happy that you are putting it out there. And I totally agree. Men do have to be part of the conversation and shouldn't be
0: afraid to be a part of the conversation. Yeah. And remember, we're planning a a future podcast now. We're going to try and get on Dr. Mindy Peltz. And I'm going to mediate you two and have you both fight it out not fighting it's all about science (laughs) all about the science exactly discussing yes exactly thank you Stacey thank you